Would you open your Bibles this morning, and I trust you brought them. That'd be a good thing to do. And I see so many out there with them. So turn to Genesis chapter 22 this morning. Genesis chapter 22. Every wedding that is done has vows that are said. And there's usually a few parts of the vows. I see a couple come forward. They're all anxious and excited. And I'll ask them a question. Will you have this woman to be your God-given wife in a covenant of marriage? Will you love her? Will you honor her? Forsaking all others, will you live only unto her as long as you both shall live? And you know those deer-in-the-headlights look. I do. And then I'll ask her the question. And then the couple generally repeats vows. They say them to each other. I take you as my lawfully wedded wife to have and to hold from this day forward for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health till death, not debt, death do us part. I've performed so many weddings and I've heard those vows said and I am convinced that young couples when they get married only hear a part of those vows. What they're hearing usually is better, richer, health. At that moment that they're saying those vows to each other, they're not considering worse, sickness, etc. Now, that's why they say the vows, because they realize there is an element of risk here. That's why I'm making a commitment that I'm with you forever, no matter what. And yet, there's a significant amount of things that can happen to a marriage that threaten the stability of that marriage. Could be health issues, could be in-laws issues that become outlaw issues. There's a whole list of things that can happen. And the result is that more people today are approaching relationships like that marriage with shallower commitments. Even a nine-year-old girl in a class when the teacher said, how can you decide whom to marry? Little Kelly said, you flip a nickel. Heads means you stay with them. Tails means you try the next one. Well, I know 29-year-olds that think as little nine-year-old Kelly. And here's the sad thing. Faith can be like that sometimes. We make a commitment to God. I love you, Lord. I'm yours. As long as it's health, better, richer. But if things don't go my way, if somehow I'm a bit inconvenienced, I'm out of here. Because I expect you, God, to do certain things for me. And I have known what I call casualties of war in the war of faith. For people who will one day be singing and reading and fellowshipping and after a while, you see they're not around. They become, as Jesus described, the seed gets choked up by the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of this age. So here's the question I ask you this morning. How do you know if your faith is any good? Answer, get it tested. Get your faith tested and it will show you the quality of your faith. In a sense, we're all taking a faith adventure. Last week our message was, buckle up, you're going on an adventure. And we looked at Abraham as he left his place and journeyed to the new land. I'm calling this message, Trusting for Better or for Worse. 
Now we're going on an adventure. We're, we're leaving after today to perform ministry in another place. And you're releasing us. And all of us are going through this test of separation. But we discover that true faith, trust, is actually strengthened by trials. And actually, we will get weaker if we live only a life of ease. Listen to what Ann Kimmel once wrote. Faith is kind of like jumping out of an airplane at 10,000 feet. If God doesn't catch you, you splatter. But how do you know whether or not He's going to catch you? Unless you jump. You remember how James said, Count it all joy, brethren, when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith works patience. So let patience have its perfect work, that you may be entire and complete, lacking nothing. This morning, as we look at Genesis 22, before we take the Lord's Supper together as a fellowship, we're going to look at this guy's faith. We discover that his faith was tested, number one. His faith was triumphant, number two. And his faith was typical or a type of something else, number three. Verse one. Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. His faith was tested the Bible says. And the word test means to prove the quality of something. You know, some of us don't like the idea of a testing God. We don't like the idea, the notion that once we make a commitment to follow God, that at some point or points along the journey, He's going to put us to a test. He's going to grant trials to come our way. Some of us say, I didn't sign up for that. No, no, I want the God who's like a recreational director on a cruise ship. God's supposed to pamper me, not try me. And there is even a theology out there that denies the, the purpose of pain and trials and suffering. You know, it's the richer, health, better. It's the, those set of the vows that they focus on. They deny the whole worth of that other side of being tested in our faith. But listen to what Peter would say to that. First Peter chapter 1. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to the praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Somebody once said, God prepares great men for great tasks by great trials. It's a test. I heard of a wealthy woman who had a very elaborate collection of jewelry. And it was so expensive, she decided to put it in a, in a bank vault at her local bank. Her prized possession was a very expensive string of pearls. Now, pearls can lose their luster unless they're in contact with human skin. So one of the bank's secretary's jobs was to wear that necklace once a week to lunch. Great job. Great part of your job description. Wearing pearls once a week. 
because they had to be in contact with human skin to retain luster. Our faith is such that it loses its luster unless it's in contact with the human condition and all that the human condition is. It needs to be tested. Notice something in verse 1. Notice that this test involves preparation. It says, Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham. That's not there by accident. That's not just an informational piece. It gives us the background of this test. After what things? After the things in chapter 21. What you don't know unless you study a little bit behind this is there is at least a 15 to 20 year gap between chapter 21 and 22. It's a time in which Abraham, Sarah, and their son Isaac had a time of rest and growth and peace. They were down in Beersheba. And it doesn't say what they were doing, but you can imagine, here's Abraham, this old guy, and his wife who's been infertile, and they have this miraculous child, and they get to walk him in the evenings and tell him how he got to earth and how God promised this beautiful uh, event would happen. And this is God, and God is faithful. And Let's talk about your future, Isaac, and what kind of a wife you're going to get, and all of those happy, happy things. It was after that peaceful time of preparation, it says that God tested Abraham. So realize that there was a time of preparation before the greatest trial of Abraham's life. There's an old Yiddish proverb that says, God gives burdens, but He also gives shoulders. So this time of preparation was God giving shoulders of strength, peace, security, so that when the burden came, Abraham was able to steady it on his shoulders. Second, notice that this test involved great pain, verse 2. Not just preparation, but great pain. Then he said, Take now your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains which I will tell you. Those words crushed Abraham's spirit. Because Isaac represented all of Abraham's hopes. He had waited 25 years for that kid to be born, and it was by God's miraculous intervention that he was born. Now, the dilemma is pretty obvious. God's promise to Abraham that he would have a son that the earth would be blessed through that son and that the tribe of Abraham would grow and grow and grow, all of the promises of God required Isaac live. But the command of God now requires that Isaac dies. It's quite a dilemma that he's in. The real issue of Abraham before God is, Abraham, whom do you love more? Take now your son, your only son, whom you love. Do you love him more than you love me? Abraham, I know you're a great guy. You're a man of faith. And here you are. And I saw you singing that wonderful song in 
church the other day, I love you, Lord, and I lift my voice to worship you, oh, my soul rejoice. That's great. But do you love me more than you love the son of your love? Whatever in our life that we treasure, don't let me scare you by this. It's not like God's going to do bad things to you this week. But whatever it is that you are holding and treasuring more than God, do not be surprised if God at some point touches that and requires you to deal with that person, thing, status before Him. Do you love Him more than me? It was J.C. Ryle who said, a religion which costs you nothing is worth nothing. Whom do you love more? Well, that's the test. Now let's look and see that his faith was triumphant. Verse 3. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him, and Isaac his son, and he split the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place which God told him. Then on the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go yonder and worship, and we will come back to you. So Abraham took the wood, the burnt offering, and laid it on Isaac, his son, and took the fire in his hand and a knife, and two of them went together. But Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, look, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, my son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. So the two of them went together. As they came to the place which God told him, Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood in order. And he bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. So he said, here I am. There's a lot of that going on in there. They call each other. I'm over here. He said, do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked. And there... Behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. It interests me that in this entire narrative, not a single thing describes the emotion that Abraham felt. Nothing. Just says God told him to do it and he did it. And here's why I think. I think because... You don't need to. It's pretty obvious that if a father is going to slay his son, that he is going to be so emotionally distraught that it's so obvious, you don't have to tell anyone that. Any parent knows if your kid's going to have surgery the next day, you're not going to get any sleep that night. And I imagine Abraham tossing and turning and dealing with this emotionally. But what the text does show us and bring to the forefront is the kind of faith that Abraham had. He promptly listened, obeyed, and made some statements. Look at verse 5. Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go yonder and worship. And notice this. 
we will come back to you. That's the statement of faith. It's Abraham and his son. God says, kill your son. Yet he tells the guys, you stay here. We're going to go, but we'll be back. We'll be back? Shouldn't you say, I'll be back? No. We're both coming back. How could Abraham say that? Here's why. At some point, I think the night before this event, Abraham is thinking about all of this in his mind. He's thinking about, God made me a promise that my son will live. Now God commands that the son should die. And he's thinking about this. He's tossing and turning in his tent. And there's only one of two options. Option number one, God is erratic and can't be trusted. And yet that is not what I have known about him. He has always proven himself to be faithful. So option number two, God is exact and can be trusted. Now, I'm not making all this up. I know it sounds like, Skip, you're just supposing he thought this. You know, in school, they always used to say the answer's in the back of the book. And so it is with the Bible. So often the answer to what is in the Old Testament is in the back of the book. And this point, it's in the book of Hebrews. And if you have a Bible, and I trust you do, you want to turn to Hebrews chapter 11 for just a moment and get the answer that's in the back of the book. Hebrews chapter 11 describes Abraham and what he thought. Hebrews 11:17 by faith Abraham went when he was tested offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said in Isaac your seed shall be called. Look at this. Concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. You see the word concluding? You could translate it calculating or logically reasoning. It's the Greek word logizomai, to logically apply a process of thought. So this is how it goes. He's thinking, okay, God is not a liar because God promised that I'd have a son. My wife was infertile. I'm an old dude, and yet here's this kid. So God fulfilled his promise. Now, God tells me to kill my son. It could look like God's erratic and he's false. If I have to kill my son and he dies and it's over, then God is false in his promise. So there's only one conclusion left. I'm going to kill him. And God is going to raise him from the dead. He'll raise him from the dead. That's the kind of faith in the promise that God made to Abraham that he walked up that hill with. I serve a God who will raise my son from the dead. So he told the guys, we'll be back. That was a statement of faith. Whenever you're in a situation where you look at this situation and you go, this doesn't make sense. This is illogical. Why would God allow this to happen? It doesn't make sense. God, you should have listened to my counsel last week. You wouldn't have been in this pickle. This doesn't make sense. It's at that point you need to stop and logically, there's nothing wrong with using your mind, theologically, logically, work through what you know about God. And as you discover God's nature, God's character, God's promises, 
you realize nothing is impossible, I can jump. I can fall into these trials. It's like a little boy who walked into his father's grocery store, an old grocery store where there was a basement. And his father was down in the basement. The boy called out for his daddy. And he heard a noise from below the floor. I'm down here, son. And his son stepped up to the little trap door that's in the floor with the ladder going down to it. And he heard his daddy's voice down there. And his daddy said, son, jump. I'll catch you. The little boy said, I can't jump. It's dark. I can't see you. His dad laughed and said, I can see you. And you know me. And the little boy abandoned himself to that shaft. And the other end were two arms, his father's catching him. So because you know God and the kind of God He is, you can work through any process. So Abraham concluded, Logizomai, logically work through this process. I'm dealing with a God who if He makes me go through this, will raise Him from the dead. There's another secret I want you to look at back in Genesis chapter 22, back in verse 5 as well. Look at what it says. Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go yonder and what? Worship. Ah. The great secret is when you take your worst trial and you build an altar there. Not saying, i got to get out of this, but no, I'm going to camp right here in this trial and from this dunghill of pain, I'm going to worship. The lad and I will go yonder and we will worship. Abraham was preoccupied with God, and perhaps that's the greatest definition I can offer you of faith, being preoccupied with God. You have a choice in a trial. Either you gaze at your trial and glance at God, or you gaze at God and you glance at your trial. What will you be overwhelmed with and preoccupied with? Every one of us will have an Isaac at some point in our lives. And at that point, God will be asking you, will you trust me for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, till death do you part? I don't know who wrote this. It's anonymous, but it goes like this. When God wants to drill a man and thrill a man and skill a man, when He yearns with all His heart to create so great and bold a man that all the world may be amazed. Watch His methods, watch His ways. How He ruthlessly perfects whom He royally elects. How He hammers Him and hurts Him and with mighty blows converts Him into trial shapes of clay which only God understands. Whom the Lord loves, He chastens. Every branch that bears fruit, He prunes. So all of those horrible things we want to avoid, it's God's vote of confidence that you're going to bring more fruit. So Abraham's faith was tested. Abraham's faith was triumphant. Third and finally, before we take the Lord's Supper, Abraham's faith was typical. It was a type, a shadow of something else. I bet you as well as me in going through chapter 22 you can't help but see striking similarities between these events and another event that would take place years later 
on the exact same hill, Mount Moriah, and that was the cross of Jesus Christ. There's enough things in the story that perk up our interest, that raise a flag. For instance, in verse 2, God says, Take now your son, your only son. Wait a minute. This is his secondborn, not his first. He had Ishmael already. God doesn't even seem to refer to Ishmael, the son of the flesh, but rather Isaac, the son of the promise. This is tantamount to saying, Take your only begotten son. So we go, hmm, that sounds sort of familiar. Sounds sort of New Testament. Also in verse 2, take your only son whom you love. Theologians love to notice the first time something is mentioned in the Bible. They call it the rule of first mention. It's noteworthy. It sort of casts for the rest of the Bible how that word is to be seen. You'll be interested to know the very first time the word love appears in all of Scripture is that verse. And this is why it's important. It is the love of a father for his only begotten son as he gives his son in sacrifice. Wow! Now that draws a frame around the word love that we can use for the rest of the Bible. Notice also in verse 2, go to the land of Moriah. We discover what that is in Second Chronicles. Moriah is where the temple was built. And if you go to Jerusalem today and you follow the slope of Mount Moriah where the temple once stood and you keep going where it rises up to the north, it comes to a peak that is known as Golgotha where Jesus was crucified. And back in those days when there was no structure, no temple, Abraham saw this landscape and he would have taken him to the top of Mount Moriah to almost sacrifice his son. Also in verse 4, it says, on the third day. That perks my interest. I don't know about you, but it tells me that in the mind of Abraham, his son was dead to him for three days. Three days journey. Every day, my son's going to die. He's dead to him. It was on the third day when he offered almost his son that the angel restrained him. And it was like a resurrection to him. Verse 6, Abraham took the wood and the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac. So here's the son carrying the wood that would become the place where he would be killed up to the top of Mount Moriah. It's very picturesque. And you see the similarities, do you not? Here's the big difference. Abraham didn't go through with it. He almost did. God, the Father, went through with it. And his son became the lamb. You know, it's interesting. Abraham said, God will provide a lamb. He didn't. He provided a ram. R, not L. But he said, God will provide a lamb. And Jesus became that lamb. Abraham entered into what we would call the fellowship of his sufferings. Do you remember Philippians? There's a verse of Scripture that says that I might know Him and the power of His resurrection. We love to underline that part. Keep going. And the fellowship of His sufferings. That I might be conformed even unto His death. Abraham experienced that. And I believe that when that knife was raised and just about ready to be plunged into the heart of His Son, 
all of the angelic hosts of heaven paused and wondered, look how much a man loves God. Thousands of years later, when God did go through with it and His Son died on a cross on that same mountain, all of the angels gasped and remarked, look how much God loves man. There was a tiny plant. The plant was small and it was stunted. It grew underneath a huge oak tree. The plant loved the shade from the big oak and felt secure to rest by it. Then one day a woodsman came and began to chop down that big oak tree and the tiny plant began to weep and cry out, No! Now I won't have any shelter! Now the rough winds will blow on me and the storms will uproot me. No, no, said the woodsman. Now the sun will be able to get to you and now the rain will be able to fall on you in more abundance than ever before. And now you will be able to grow and not to stay stunted any longer. And now, since you'll get more sunshine and more rain, your flowers will blossom like they have never blossomed before. So God would ask you today, do you trust me? For better? For worse? In sickness? In health? Richer? Poorer? Until death do you part or until the Lord returns and takes you to heaven in the rapture? Either way, will you trust Him now? Well, He's trustworthy. And if you can theologically, logically work through what you know God to be in those times, and then from that spot, worship Him, your faith will be triumphant. And that's what the Bible means when it uses the word overcome. Heavenly Father, as we take these elements... I'm going to ask the communion board to come as we pray. Father, as we take these elements this morning that remind us of the ultimate sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ on Mount Moriah, these elements that speak of our forgiveness, our acceptance into Your presence, your great love that washes every single stain of every single sin away. We're humbled. Say we embrace, we accept, and we will joy when we fall into various trials. Knowing what they'll produce and knowing that as we fall, you're there to catch us. Because you're a Father that we can trust. In Jesus' name.